0: This has been a morning of some technical difficulties, so I apologize. I just my my battery is flashing red at me as I was coming up here. So I have Romel in the back, trying to me some batteries. So if you find some then I'll put the other mic down. Um, as we do every Friday morning, we, we gather together and when we do, like on this morning, we gather to see our God. We gathered together to see our God revealed to us. And so when we come together, we have to know and believe that the God that we are singing to is absolutely real, that he is there. And one particular truth that we have to understand, know, and truly believe is that our God has a plan. That our God has a plan. That nothing happens by accident. That everything that God is doing is intentional. Nothing catches God by surprise. And he has a plan. And, and to make it very simple, God's plan is to display his glory. That's what God does. That's what he's about. Is His plan is to display his eternal perfections. His plan is to display his in- eternal wisdom and his indescribable majesty and his magnificence. God's plan is to display his glory, and he does it by creating a people, you and me, by creating a people that will be holy, that we belong to him, and that will enjoy him forever, and so that is how God, he shows his indescribable grace, and so the apex, the highest point of God's glory is his grace, where he gives us forgiveness, and eternal life, and He gives us Himself, the source of all joy. And so when God creates a people and makes them holy through His Spirit that belong to Him and will enjoy Him, then that shows the world that there is a God and He is the living God and He desires and deserves our loyalty and our affections. And when you read the Bible from the beginning, book of Genesis to the end, book of Revelation... Everything in between is about this singular idea. Everything in this book is about God displaying his glory. Everything is about his plan. And so when you begin with creation, it's all moving towards God's ultimate end as seen in Revelation. And so this is one story, the Bible, with one main character moving towards this one end of God displaying his glory. And it's this Bible is God describes God's plan of redemption, and it's all about Jesus. That's what it's about. Everything in here points to is fulfilled by Jesus. No? No batteries. All right, I'll hold this one. So today we begin a new teaching series in the book of Joshua. The series is titled Victorious, the Gospel in the Book of Joshua. And so everything in the book of Joshua is a foreshadowing to Jesus. So everything in Joshua that we're going to see over the next several weeks through the end of the year, it's pointing to fulfilled in the person of Jesus, our victorious King Jesus. And understanding the book of Joshua as we will in the coming weeks together will help you to see more of God's glory. Now, why is that so important? Why are we emphasizing this Seeing God's glory. The reason is that when you are beholding the glory of God, it changes you. So whatever has your gaze, whatever you are focused on, will dictate the direction of your life. And so if we are focused on the glory of King Jesus, then our hearts will be gripped and we will more desire him. And will desire Jesus more than the fleeting pleasures of sin. Because there is pleasure in sin. We're not gonna celebrate that because it's not worth celebrating. You celebrate Jesus. But the truth is that there is pleasure in sin, but it's fleeting and it leads to destruction. And seeing the glory of God will change our hearts so that we then desire more of Him. But before we can jump into the book of Joshua, we we, we need some context because I don't assume everyone knows the context of the book of Joshua. So let's begin and give you some of the history so you understand the setting so the book comes alive and makes much more sense to you. And so God initiated his plan of redemption back in the book of Genesis. You see it with the very first man and woman, Adam and Eve. They sin, and God promises that a seed, a descendant of the woman, Will crush the head of the serpent, and so there 's a promise in chapter three of Genesis, verse fifteen, the first gospel, the proto evangeliums when you want to use the big word, the first gospel that tells us that a a human born of a woman will defeat the enemy and give us redemption, give us victory, and then you see this theme continuing through to you get to chapter twelve and fifteen and seventeen those In those three chapters, there's this calling of a man man named Abram, later renamed Abraham. And so to him, there's the same thing. There's a promise of a seed, promise of a descendant that will be the blessing to all people. And so God goes into a covenant relationship with the man and Abraham. And he makes promises. And there's three primary key elements to the promises that God makes to Abraham. The first one is descendants. Again, this, issue, this thought of seed, a descendant will come who will be a blessing to all nations who will defeat the enemy. And so the first promise is that he's going to have descendants. A nation will come from Abraham. Second promise is blessings. He says, I'll bless those who bless you, curse those who curse you, and through you all the peoples, all the nations of the world will be blessed. This is pointing, of course, to Jesus, the descendant of Abraham. So he was promised, first of all, descendants, blessing, and lastly, land. So God said, I'm going to give you a good land, the land of Canaan. That will be your inheritance. That's where you will be and experience my presence. I will live among you in this good land. So descendants, blessings, and land are the primary elements in what you see in Genesis with Abraham. Now, the the book of Joshua is focused on this third one, on the land. That's the primary emphasis of the book of Joshua because God had promised his people to give them a good land. But up to this point, they'd been living outside of the land. If you remember, what happened is these these promises that were given to Abraham, he moves to the promised land to Canaan, but he didn't stay there. Well, he did, but his descendants didn't. They ended up moving to Egypt. This is described in the end of Genesis and beginning with Exodus. Now, all of these promises given to Abraham were within a particular context. They weren't random. It was within the context, the framework of a covenant relationship. God chose Abraham. Now, this is huge. Because we say language like, I found Jesus. Well, was he lost? Like so you found jesus really no wait. jesus found you you're the one that was lost he came to seek and save the lost he came for the lost sheep he's a good shepherd who lays his life down for the sheep you didn't find jesus jesus found you praise and all the glory be to him and you see that with abraham who was abraham he was a pagan he, he was lost in idolatry. He, he wasn't following the one true God. The one true God went and sovereignly, divinely chose. You could even say elected Abraham. Appeared to him and said, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you descendants. I'm going to give you a land. All of these blessings promised to Abraham. So God enters into a relationship with Abraham. He was showing him grace. Abraham was lost very far from God, lost in his idols, and God chose him and saved him from himself and entered into a relationship, but a very specific relationship, a covenant relationship. Now, we say covenant in church all the time, right? A covenant, but what does it actually mean? Like, can you define what a covenant, I mean, some people know covenant, but what is it? Well, let's define it. Let's give you a definition for what a covenant is. A covenant is a formal relationship based on an oath with specific commitments. So again, covenant is a formal relationship that's based on an oath with specific commitments. And so there's three parts. There's relationship, and it involves obligations, and it's established by an oath. So these are the realities of what a covenant is is. God committed himself to his people. He promised to bless them. But remember, remember God's plan. God's plan is to create a a what? A holy people that will belong to him and enjoy him forever. And so he is calling a people that will be made into his image that will be holy because God is holy and God hates sin. So he wants us to be like that. As well. And so a covenant is a relationship, but one that demands that God's people will submit to Him, that we will enjoy Him, but that we will obey Him as well. So, through Moses, later, you kind of fast forward the story, what happens? The people were enslaved in Egypt. And so if if you don't know how it happened, we actually covered this, the book of Exodus, a year ago. We began in September, finished in January, went through Exodus. So a few of you, and over half of you, weren't here for that. But if you were, you remember how they were enslaved. And so the descendants of Abraham, the people that were given the promise, the promise that all the world will be blessed through the Messiah, through ultimately we know his name is Jesus, was going to come through this family. But they're out of the promised land, and they're living in Egypt, enslaved, and they're suffering. And what does God do? Raises up a leader, Moses, to liberate them. God is keeping his promises. The word redeem, what it means is to be liberated from slavery. So he redeemed them. He saved them powerfully. And so then what happens? When God is being faithful, keeping his promises, Moses leads them to the edge of Canaan, the promised land. And they're about to go in, and Moses is going to lead them to take the promised land. So what does he do? He does reconnaissance. He sends 12 spies to check out to scout the land. And we know what happens, right? If you're raised in church. Ten spies were bad and two were good. And so ten of them came back, ten of the twelve spies, and they said what? No, the cities are too fortified. And the people are too powerful. And our God is too weak. Our God is not able. Yes, he liberated us from slavery in Egypt and part of the Red Sea. Yes, he, he provided for us. He saved us, but this one, this is too big for God. God God can't handle this. This is too much for him. We we can't expect this much from God to actually go in and keep God's promises, keep his word, and give us the land. They're like, no, God's too weak. They're too strong. We can't. And the people were all believing these ten horrible, faithless spies. But then there were two, Joshua and Caleb that said, no, what are you talking about? God is faithful. We can trust him. Yeah, it's scary, but God's calling us to this. We can do this. Not, not that we can, but God's going to help us. He'll fight for us. The victory belongs to God. Let's trust him. But no, the, 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 the nation disregarded Joshua and Caleb and followed the advice, the foolish, evil, demonic, satanic, counsel of these 10 men and said, no, we will not trust God. We will not obey God. And so what was the result? Judgment. Now remember, in this covenant, there were expectations. God says, I'll be faithful to you. I'll be your God. You be my people. You have to obey me. And they didn't. And so that entire generation for 40 years lived in the desert. And that was just 40 years of funerals because they were just waiting for everyone to die. That's what they did for 40 years, burying the dead, going around the same tombs in the same desert, which is not even that big, for 40 years, waiting for a whole generation that did not believe God to die. Only two, Moses and Caleb, that were faithful, who believed God, were the only ones that would be allowed to enter into the, the promised land With a new generation. Our God is faithful. He is. And as we'll see in the book of Joshua. It's a bridge. It's a bridge between the first five books. I just gave you very bare bones overview of the first five books in the Bible. Sometimes called the Pentateuch or the Torah. Torah is a word that means instruction or teaching. So these first five books written by Moses. Moses give us this history of what happened, how they became God's people. But but the Torah ends, and they're in the wilderness. They're not in the promised land where God promised them. And now there's the Exodus part two, the sequel. Same story, it's just continued. That's Joshua. And so Joshua is a continuation of the same redemption story seen in the Pentateuch, the Torah. And, and so it's a bridge between the Pentateuch and the rest of the Old Testament. And so To get to the other history books and the prophets, and and so to make sense of the entire Old Testament, you need the connection, the bridge, and that is what the book of Joshua is. So Joshua explains how they went from slavery and from the wilderness into the land. So, so, So Joshua explains how they took possession of the promised land. It's very important. So who was this Joshua guy, all right? So we're talking about the book that describes what happened with him leading, but who was he? He was born as a slave. He was born in Egypt into slavery. He saw firsthand. He was there at that Passover when all the firstborn of Egypt died. He was there when that lamb's blood was smeared across the doorpost. He saw that. He saw the Red Sea parted. He spent 40 years in the wilderness waiting for others to die. So he had to suffer because of others' disobedience. He was the military leader. And so he was the one that led the Israelites to victory when they were in the wilderness and had battles. He was a faithful man. He and Caleb both, only two that would see the promised land from that generation. And so this Joshua, who was the assistant to Moses, now becomes the leader. And now he's going to lead this new generation to cross the Red Sea, enter into the promised land, and conquer it for God. Defeat the enemy in the name of God. So with all of that context, let's actually go to Joshua chapter 1. And let's read verses 1 through 4. And here's what God's word says to us. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant. Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, And so Moses is dead, but God's purposes are still alive and well. With Moses' death, it was time for Joshua, the assistant, to become Joshua, the leader of the people of God, to lead them to victory, to cross the Red Sea, or rather the, the Jordan River, cross the Jordan River, go into the land that's promised to them, and defeat the enemies. And so this is God's command. The promises, the promise I made. To Moses, they did May 1st to Abraham. And so this is an act of faith, an act of obedience. God is saying, go do this. And so he is doing this. But God is the one keeping his promises. God, what you're seeing here, is accomplishing his purposes by defeating his enemies and giving this land to his people. And so these first few verses give us the theme for the entire book and, of course, for our teaching series just based on this book. And so the series theme is that God faithfully leads his people to victory over the enemy and gives them rest. And that's what we're looking at for the next few months is that God faithfully leads his people and will have victory over the enemy in our lives, and with God we have rest. So the book of Joshua points to the victory over our enemy. And and we'll see over the next few weeks that Joshua points to the ultimate victory that we have in Jesus which is what the gospel is all about in the first place. The gospel is good news. The good news that what? The good news that Jesus is the sacrifice, that he took our guilt and shame and sin and paid for it on the cross, and he died, but he resurrected powerfully and now is victorious over all of the domain of evil and of darkness, and he offers us sinners a full pardon if we repent and believe in him. And so through his resurrection, Christ has defeated Satan and sin and death itself. And in our lives, we can have victory because of, because of Jesus, because he did it. And so as we read Joshua 1 here this morning, I want to give you the primary truth, the truth of this chapter, so that we can then begin to look a little bit more closely. And the primary truth in this text is that God promises to give his people victory over the enemy. That is chapter 1 in Joshua. that God promises to give his people victory over the enemy. So the only way that your soul is going to find victory and rest is by trusting in Jesus. So let me ask you, and I want you to think about this very honestly. Do you need victory over an addiction? Do Do you need victory over evil desires? Do you need victory over anxiety? Do you need victory over sorrow? In your life, do you truly want victory? Talking to a brother this morning, I mean, just an hour ago, he was like, brother, I was up half the night in battle, fighting. And it was awesome because he told me I was fighting with the sword of the Spirit It's amazing, because that's the only offensive weapon. If you read the armor of God, it's all defense. You have a shield of faith, helmet of salvation, right? That's defense. Shoes of the gospel. You can't fight with shoes. What do you fight with? A sword. What is the only weapon? The sword of the spirit that is the word of God. That is our weapon. We'll talk about it here in this text, more of how we fight, how this works, and just bear with me, and we'll get there. But I want you, as we look at the rest of this chapter this morning, to really think, what is it in my life that is dragging me down, that is taking away my spiritual vitality? What is it that is clouding the presence of God in my life? What what is it in my life right here, today and now Abu Dhabi, 21st century, yes, in a hot Emirates Park Zoo. What do you need victory over? Because we have a a Savior in heaven who's given us His Spirit, and we can have victory book of joshua tells us that victory belongs to god it's his victory we're just the recipients of it and we just act in faith knowing that he gives us the victory but how does this work i mean practically taking these thoughts and in everyday life how exactly do we experience this kind of spiritual victory in our lives this amazing chapter gives us some ingredients Ingredients for victory. And so there are four of them specifically in this text. The first ingredient that we see here necessary for us to have victory is God's presence. We need the presence of God in our lives. And you see that in verse 5 and 6 as we continue reading. And God says to Joshua, No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life, just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Amazing. He says, no man shall stand before you, saying no one will able to face you, specifically oppose you in the field of battle. No one can oppose you and win. No one can withstand you, Joshua. So victory is assured to God's people. And he says, just as I was with Moses, I will be with you. I am with you. Joshua was promised God's continuing presence in his life. He says, I will not leave you or forsake you. This is an amazing promise that we have to know and believe. This is not just lip service. This is God's word given to his people. God chose Joshua to accomplish his purposes. He chose him to be the the leader of Israel. But when he wasn't yet a leader, when they were in the wilderness, in Numbers 27, verse 18, I'll read it to you. Numbers 27, verse 18, this is years earlier. It says, the Lord said to Moses, take Joshua, the son of Nun, a man in whom is the spirit and lay your hand on him. Powerful. God chose Joshua, and he said, Moses, lay your hands on him, commission him, install him as your assistant and future leader. My spirit is on him. So the Holy Spirit was upon Joshua. So God told him, be strong and be courageous in these verses. Be strong, Joshua, not in your own strength, but because my spirit is on you. And so God's presence in our lives, you know what it does? Do you you know what God's presence does in my life and in yours? It gives us hope. It gives us courage to do what? To face our sin, that ugly, scary sin. We can face it and not run and hide. We can face it. And it won't defeat us. We will not be overcome. Why? Because God's Holy Spirit is with us. And he's making us like himself. Holy. So it gives us hope and courage to dig deep. And to look at the reality of our sin. And stop the hiding and the pretending. And come clean before God and other brothers and sisters. Because we have God's presence in us. He can face the enemy, and he will not be defeated. And so just like with Joshua, we have God's presence. So what are you facing? What is, to use the words here, standing before you? What is standing before you today? What are you truly facing on the battlefield of your life? So what are you struggling with, and what temptations are you facing God repeatedly tells his people, focus on me. Enjoy my presence. I promise to give you victory. I am sovereign. He's like, you will do this. You will inherit the land. These are promises. It's going to happen. You can bank on it. But still, there's still the command. Verses 2 and 4 repeatedly say that he is giving. He is giving this land. There's Eight times in this chapter, there's a reference to God giving land. And so it's not like it's going to fail. God's the one giving. And yet, in these two verses, verses 5 and 6, the emphasis, you make an effort. He's saying, you be strong and you be courageous, Joshua. And so we need to be strong and courageous. Yes, God was giving them land. It's going to happen. But what were the means? God was going to use the means of them fighting against the enemy to take it. And so verse 5 is clear. It says, you will cause this people to inherit the land that I swore. Again, remember, covenant has an oath that I swore to their fathers to give them. So God promised he'll deliver. But does God's sovereignty take away our responsibility to follow Jesus? No. Yes, God is absolutely sovereign. We affirm that. God loves you. He chose you. His spirit is sustaining you. Yes, God is sovereign, but that does not take away the fact that we are still responsible for how we live our lives. And Joshua had to believe God, believe that he really would be with him, and take steps of obedience. Look, if you're struggling with something, and I say if all of us are, let's just be honest, all of us are in need, every one of us, you're not going to overcome you're not gonna you're not gonna defeat the enemy overnight. Okay, you're not. Just know this. It's a lifelong process, a lifelong battle. And there's little steps of daily obedience. It's not all at once. And if you're in a season of victory right now, then you praise God for that. But guess what's around the corner? You're not in heaven yet. You're not glorified yet. You're not. You're in a fallen world. It's a daily struggle, but that's the whole point. We actually struggle. I mentioned this before, but some people say, oh, I'm struggling with this sin. They're not even struggling at all. They're not struggling. They're giving into it. Struggling is a good thing. Struggling is fighting against it, not giving in. Enjoying the presence of God through his spirit in you will give you the hope and the courage to be strong and to fight against whatever it is that is standing against you. Daily, small steps of obedience. So God's promise is do not absolve us of our responsibility to hate sin. God hates sin. We should hate our sin. And if you don't hate our sin, if we don't hate our sin, I would ask you to look in the mirror and ask yourself, why? Why why don't I hate this? God hates it. His spirit is in me. And find a close brother or sister, same gender, and be honest with him or her. I'm going to help you and pray for you. We need this. The Holy Spirit empowers our efforts. We make the effort, but his spirit is what empowers us. And Joshua's name says it all. If you go back to Numbers 13, verse 16, again, and in the context here, his name originally wasn't Joshua. His name was Hoshea, which, by the way, means he saves. And so Joshua's name was originally Hoshea. Well, again, name meant he saves. But Moses changed his name to Joshua. Why would he do that? Because Joshua means the Lord saves. And so his name was changed. Now, in the Hebrew, the word Joshua is pronounced Yeshua. Now, when you take that name Yeshua, Joshua, and you translate it into Greek, it's Yesus. And so the English word Yesus is how we would pronounce it and spell it Jesus. And so Joshua and Jesus is the same name. It means the Lord Saves, or the Lord is salvation, which is why when the angel appeared to Joseph, he said, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sin. The Lord saves. It's his work. We just have to trust him. Trust him every day, enjoying his presence so that we can take those steps of obedience and have victory in our lives. This is all pointing to Jesus, his work on the cross, to defeat sin and death itself. So the first ingredient to have victory is you need the Holy Spirit's presence. You need God's presence in your life. You need to be experiencing that every day. The second ingredient is God's word. You see in verses 7 through 9. So you need the presence of God. You need the word of God. Verses 7 through 9 say, Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. We need to read these verses more than just a Friday morning. We need to reread these verses. And we need to spend time really understanding and meditating on these verses. They're so powerful. Be strong and be very courageous. When you go face the enemies, don't be afraid. Don't be frightened. Yes, this looks too big for you. It looks like you can't possibly accomplish this. But I have called you, haven't I? Trust me. Trust me. Look at my track record. I've never failed. I'm not going to start now. Have I not commanded you, God says? Be strong and very courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. I'm with you wherever you go. So God's presence, again, gives us this hope. But God reveals the second one here. He says, be careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. He says, don't turn from it. And this book of the law, the Torah, he says, shall not depart from your mouth. So he says, don't depart from your mouth. I keep talking about it. So he says, we must focus on God's word in order to experience victory. He's like, you want victory? You need my presence and you need my word. If you don't have a daily intake of God's word, you will not have victory in your life. You can't. Because you're trying to do it away or apart from how God revealed. He's telling Joshua, you're going to do this. I'm going to empower you, but you have to read my word. You have to speak about my word. And he says, and you shall meditate on it day and night. Meditate. What does the word meditate mean? Meditate means focus your thinking. So we're going to have focused thinking on God's word. Bottom line is everyone in this room meditates. All of us meditate. Whether you realize it or not, you you meditate. There are things in your life that you focus your thinking on. Now the question is: what is it? What do you meditate on? What do you think about the most? What has your mind? Engaged and captivated. And so, are are you meditating on your problems? Some people do. All day long, they're thinking about their problems and rehearsing and meditating and thinking and pondering all of their problems. Others meditate on their spouse and how to change her or him. Constantly meditating on how can I manipulate or control. Now, we don't say those words out loud. But that's what we're doing. We're always meditating, we're thinking about, or maybe finances, where you're checking your bank statement every single day. It hasn't changed from yesterday. It's the same. You don't have to meditate on it all the time. But there are things, I mean, honestly, it, it could be sexuality. You name it. It could be sports. There's any number of things that we can just meditate and have our thoughts always focused on. But we're told to meditate, to focus our thoughts on God's word. So you have to read it and meditate on it. It says speak about it. Have it on, in your mouth all the time. And this was written by Moses. I know that there are liberal theologians that would say, oh, no, no, no. The Torah was not written by Moses. The Torah was a collection of sayings over hundreds of years. and was No, it's not. It was written by Moses. How do I know? The Bible tells me so. In Deuteronomy 31. Verses 24 through 26 says, Moses had finished writing the words of this. So what? Moses finished writing the words of this law in a book to the very end. Moses and the Levites who carried the Ark of the Covenants of the Lord take this book of the law and put it by the side of the Ark of the covenant. Moses wrote it. He says so. Now, I know the end of Deuteronomy says Moses had already died say, well, who wrote? Well, Joshua clearly wrote the end of Deuteronomy. He was was the one who was now leading the people. But what we see here is that God's word was revealed through the spirit of God to a man who wrote down and wrote down exactly what God wanted it to say without error. It's inerrant and it's infallible and it is the rule and authority for this church and for our lives. It's God's word given to us inspired by his spirit. And so they had the Torah. They had the first five books. They knew how to please God. And this text tells us how do we as followers of God, followers of Jesus, how do we treat God's word? Three things. He says, talk about it. Think about it and do it. He says, talk about it. Let it not depart from your mouth. He says, think about it. He says, meditate on it day and night. And he says, be careful to do. Apply it. And so God's word, the life of a believer, is to talk about it all the time, talking about God's word. It may be on your lips. So what do you talk about? What consumes your conversation? What you talk about is just overflow from what's in your heart. So he says, talk about my word. He says, think about my word. And he says, do it. It's not enough to just talk about it. We need to, but we need to actually Do it. We need to, by faith, obey it. Do what God says. So if we're to have victory in our lives, we need God's presence. We need God's word. And next, we need faithful leadership. So the third ingredient to have success, to have victory, is faithful leadership. Now, I won't teach on this this morning because we're going to be covering it in our home groups. And so in our church, where we do home groups is Every home group does the same material, the same questions that I put together, email to the leaders, and it's based on the sermon, but I'm not going to teach on it so that you can then go in your home groups this week and do your own observations. And do your own interpretation to find the meaning. And then you can apply it together. Verses 10 through 15 describes how Joshua, the humble, spirit-filled leader, was delegating responsibility to others so that they could then go and experience victory. And so we'll explore in our groups this week on what it looks like to have faithful leadership. And how is it that God has called you to lead? That's in those verses. Go to a home group, and you can experience that for yourself. So we need God's presence, God's word, faithful leadership, and lastly, committed community. We need committed community. You see it in the end, verses 16 through 18. And they answer Joshua, all that you have commanded us, we will do. And wherever you send us, we will go. Just as we obeyed Moses in all things, so we will obey you. Only may the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. Whoever rebels against your commandment and disobeys your words, whatever you command him shall be put to death. Only be strong and courageous. Powerful. This entire community was committed to obey God, to follow their leadership and go where God would lead them. And they were doing it together. They were going to go and accomplish God's purposes together together. Only way to have victory is to do it together. We need one another. I need you, and you need me, and we need each other. All of us need each other. And so I would love and I pray that our church would be a committed community. May we truly love one another, show grace to one another, and receive loving correction from one another. May we welcome new people into our faith family. May you truly belong. Why we've been talking the last few weeks so much about joining a home group and being in a discipleship group where you can have accountability and have accelerated spiritual growth. Our desire here as a church is to glorify God by making and developing disciples, not, not just casual Christians, not just jam-packed as many people into the zoo. That's not our goal. It's to glorify God by making and developing disciples, and that's only done in community with God's word, through his presence, with faithful leadership. With us committed as a community, we can do whatever God calls us to do because the victory belongs to him. So may we echo these words to our king, Yeshua. All that you have commanded us, we will do. Wherever you send us, we will go. To our King Jesus, our Yeshua, our God, our Redeemer, who is worthy, who is glorious and truly magnificent and gives us hope and joy, the only source of joy, Jesus. May we say to him, all that you have commanded us, we will do. And wherever you send us, we will go. This opening chapter in Joshua is magnificent. So it's a God who gives freely, giving, giving more, giving. He gives land. He gives them the, the, the leadership with Joshua. He gives them his word. He gives them his presence. He's forever good, and he gives, and he makes promises to us. He keeps his word. He is faithful. And so for us, it's trusting him, enjoying him. In your life, are you experiencing victory? As we close this morning. I want you to ponder that this week. You have to have his word in his presence. And you need people around you. What are you facing today? Be strong and courageous. God is with you. The victory is his. Verse 18 is powerful. Whoever rebels against your commandment and disobeys your word, whatever you command, he should be put to death. Pretty heavy. But disobedience leads to death. And so that's the penalty that we're seeing right here. We can keep the covenant. We can't hope to possibly always be obedient enough to God. We're not good enough. We sin. We're corrupted from the inside, which is why God would one day fulfill this and bring us Jesus, who endured it on the cross. But we deserve to die, and he died in our place. And this morning, we're going to partake of the Lord's table with communion where we celebrate this together of how Jesus died and made a way. He was obedient when we are not. And then his spirit empowers us to live lives of holy direction as we wait for that day where we will be perfectly glorified. If you've never understood this and you've never actually made a decision to receive Christ as your Savior, where you've repented and trust in Jesus alone, You can do so today. You can. And we would love for you to. And come talk to me. Let me know so I can get you with someone else to help you keep growing and following Jesus. And if you are a believer, we follow him together. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for giving us your word. We thank you for the joy of being able to pursue you in this community. We thank you for the book of Joshua that has so much for us to learn. I pray that you would help us to keep following you. We praise in the name of Jesus. Amen.